So hello everyone and welcome back to the Ipsos Views podcast. Uh, whether you're watching or just listening, it's becoming a bit of a tradition here at Ipsos that we make a special effort at the end of each year to look back events of the previous 12 months and to consider what they can teach us about the year just gone and more importantly the year and the years still to come. So to help us in that endeavour this time, I'm joined by two very special guests I'm very pleased to introduce to you. Um, both of them understand the power of history to help us prepare for the future. So in no particular order, first of all, I have on my left um, my colleague, the very esteemed global CEO of Ipsos, Mr. Ben Page, who's also, in addition to that, a visiting professor of King's College London and a fellow of the Academy of Social Sciences. Welcome, Ben. Thank you. And making his debut with us today, I'm also overjoyed to welcome Phil Tinline, who's a documentary producer, journalist, and probably most relevant to this conversation, the author of a fantastic book, which I'm going to wave around now, called The Death of Consensus, 100 Years of British Political Nightmares. Britain isn't the only place that has political nightmares, as we know, we'll find out in a moment. Um, it's actually published last year, but like all great works, uh, it has a timeless quality that means its influence will grow over time rather than diminish, I believe that. So welcome both of you, welcome Phil. Thank you. So Phil, as you're on our guest today, I thought it was only fair to put the first question to you. Um, if I've understood it correctly, your book, I think, makes three key arguments. The first of which is that what we call consensus is usually just a messy, uneven, somewhat uncomfortable set of fudges, obfuscations and compromises that give the appearance of broad alignment. And secondly, that consensus is typically motivated by shared fears and anxieties rather than a positive desire for something to happen. And thirdly, those periods where consensus is achieved are impermanent and fleeting and actually at any given moment we're just as likely to be in a time of turmoil and discord as we are to be in a time of consensus. Um, so if I've got that right, and you, good, I, th I think I think that was a, um, <laughs> yeah. a positive uh, response. Um, given your book was published in 2022 last year, mm -hmm. if you were to write an updated edition now, mm -hmm. um, is there anything you would add or change to what's in here and what events from this year at home or abroad would you be pointing to to strengthen and, and make your argument? Well, so, I mean, just on the word consensus, I mean, I agree with your summary. It's very on point. I mean, I think the reason people are suspicious sometimes of the word consensus is they think it means that everybody has to agree about everything or it's not real. My argument is that uh, what has happened, I think, historically, and as you say, it's always impermanent because agreements never last forever. Uh, there are periods of agreement when people say that there is one thing we must never go back to. There's something we must not allow to happen, a sort of dominant nightmare. Now, there are always multiple nightmares, multiple, you know, worst case scenarios, things that we're worried about. But if we can agree that there's one that we can focus on. So after the Second World War, we must never go back to the mass unemployment of the 1930s. After the 70s, we must never go back to the strikes and inflation of the 1970s. Then there's a degree of agreement and we can go on from there. So in terms of um, things that have happened over the last year or so that I would add, I mean, I've, I've written afterward for the paperback, which I wrote in the summer, but, you know, events are <laughs> unfolding apace the whole time. I think one thing that's happened in the last 18 months is that there's a particular word that uh, think tanks and to some extent uh, Labour have started to use, and you see it elsewhere as well, this is not exclusive to Labour, which is insecurity, which I think is functioning rather well as a catch-all uh, to summarise a whole bunch of different things which they kind of needed to bring together. So there's both the economic worries, stagnant pay, zero hours contracts, economic uncertainties of all kinds, can't pay a heating bill, all of that, but also a sense that there's a more inchoate set of uh, fears and you know, the 
polycrisis you talk about in the report that you know something terrible is coming with the environment that AI might melt everything that there are wars and so on and I think by focusing on that word insecurity regardless of whether it's labor or anybody else I think that's quite useful in sort of taking us towards something that we could potentially start to agree on of course the problem with it is it's rather abstract and what happens next I think is to go back to something more specific okay so Ben although Phil's book deals largely or exclusively with the United Kingdom. Do you think the hypothesis actually applies in the rest of the world as well? Well, I think it. I think you can see very clearly, if you look at post-war history in Europe and actually North America, you can see that period of uh, mass unemployment in the 30s, followed by World War II. And then in France, and we're a French company, the Trente Glorious from 1945 to 1975 with full employment, general agreement that you, know, you need the, the, the state and industry to work together um, for, for the benefit of society and you you see and, and to, to a lesser extent you can see that uh, across a whole range of western societies it then breaks down as phil describes in the book uh, in the late starts to break down in the late 60s early 70s and then we have inflation becoming the new monster um, i think the challenge at the moment is and this is why i found the book a really a really useful way of framing some of the things that we're going through uh, and you know the great quote from gramsci that's uh, that phil has points to he's writing gramsci was a originally writing in the 30s and he was talking about fascism he says of course you know the the old order is dying but the new order is not yet ready to be born and it throws up nightmares to me we are in this period that sort of began the, the roots of it begin b- before 2008 but from the 2008 recession uh, you then have massive reflation of the economy and also accompanying debt we have a very low inflation environment asset owners get richer uh, there's austerity in the public sector uh, across Europe and in, in, in particular particularly in Britain. Um, and we're still, and we're now at the tail end of that, compounded by COVID. So you've had this sort of 15-year period, which actually, to me, ref, you know, is similar to 1930 to 1945, potentially. Not quite as, we haven't quite had World War II, but we've had some pretty dramatic, when you look at debt, um, we're back at World War II levels, which is pretty extraordinary um, for the British state. You'd, you know, 30 years ago, you'd have said that's amazing. And so where, what is the new consensus? As Phil points out, people in the West, and you see it in America, you can see it across Latin America, they have lost They have lost the future. This idea of rising living standards, which we've inherited, continually rising living standards that we inherited from the post-World War II world is now long gone. As you know, at the, end of the, at the beginning of this century, only about one person in eight in Britain expected their children to be poorer than them. It's now around half, and that's a massive psychological shift. So how are we going to give people that security that they want? And very importantly, how will we pay for it? Uh, and that's to me we're, that we are in a way, you know, in this period of searching for a new consensus of some type, messy though it may be, and, and almost certainly will be. And both sides have not, left and right, have not yet found a solution. Well, so I think you both agreed then that we live currently in a very messy, contested period. So we can just explore uh, a little bit about this polarization, tension between polarization and consensus. Another piece of paper I'm going to wave about, not quite in Neville Chamberlain style, but uh, our new Ipsos Global Trends release has just come out last week, I think, and it's called Polarization, Pessimism and Positivity. Lots of nice alliteration in there. Um, Polarization does seem to be a defining characteristic of our politics at the moment, the economy as well, and even culture. And 
Do you think, um, Ben, I mean, what's our data saying? Do you think we're actually spending too much time on social media or is actually, in, out there in the real world, do we actually have more in common with each other than we perhaps think? Well, uh, the, if you spend all your time looking at social media, you'll get some rather strange ideas about the world. And of course, actually, most people spend much less time thinking about politics on social media than the people who, who get paid to talk about politics. So we should always remember that. Just look at how often footballers are mentioned on Twitter or, or celebrities compared to prime ministers. And, uh, you know, if you were, it was just a slightly sobering thought for anybody covering politics. Um, no, I think there's, look, there's still lots of things that unite people. I mean, in, in this country, country, people are actually united about wanting a national health service, wanting decent public services. There are, there are, there are plenty of things. They don't necessarily agree on how they should be paid for, but uh, they do, you know, there are certain things that they do agree on. So we can, we can exaggerate polarization. And actually, again, America is, is a, a polarized society. Many other societies in Europe, I would probably say, are more fragmented than polarised. And we, it is not a global, a completely black and white global phenomenon. We, we should be pretty careful about that. It's nice of us to, call, to put it on the cover of the report. But uh, it's, you know, it's, we, we can exaggerate that. Uh, and I think that's, you know, our, and our, the fact that our politics uses things like culture wars as a way of distracting from some of the macroeconomic arguments that we need to have um, is, is also sort of interesting. Um, so Phil, just returning to your book for a moment. Mm -hmm. um, a section I was reading this week uh, around the, the outset of World War II and how at that point in time um, Britain was moving towards, and it wasn't the only country to be doing this, of course, to a more centrally planned, isolated national economy. Um, but after the war, of course, there was a rapid swing in the other direction in terms of the, you know, the, the, the extent to which globalisation um, was was um, evident around the world. You know, although it was divide, the world was dividing into two blocks at that time, there was still mm. a lot of international cooperation mm. after the war. Um, our survey, Global Trends Survey, finds that public attitudes around the world are actually generally quite favourable towards globalisation at the moment, in spite of some of the chatter about deglobalisation. There are exceptions, of course. I mean, I think Turkey and South Africa stood out as, as being countries where maybe that's not quite so true. Um, but very dramatic economic challenges, uh, either with migration or migration and unemployment in both those countries, though, which is just a, generally, I think, globalised. We need to be a little bit careful. I think it is interesting that people are not obsessed about globalisation as some on the, the right are, for example. Uh, but I, I think for many people, globalisation means growth and positivity for a lot of people in the world. Globalization over the last 30 years is what has lifted living standards. We can argue about its impact on some communities in the West, uh, but it's not, it's certainly, even in the West, actually, most pe a lot of people will say it's still positive. So we should, yes, we should remind ourselves of that sometimes. I mean, the reason I, I bring this up is because we at Ipsos, here at Ipsos, hope springs eternal. Um, and I think it is possible, you know, if we look back at the grand span of history, it is possible that so, you know, it's the darkest hours before the dawn, etc. So it might be that after 10 years of tumult, actually, we might be approaching the end of this period of discord and polarisation. I mean, do you think that's plausible? Yeah, I mean, I think um, globalisation intersects right into this. And then one of the things that struck me about the report is saying that, you know, globalisation, you know, is a sort of local thought process. People think different things about it depending on where you are, which is quite telling. I think also, as, as Ben suggests, it depends on the sort of, you know, the way that the word is interpreted wherever you are. You know, if it is seen as, you know, connecting people, knocking down barriers, growth, opportunity, you know, all of that, trade, fantastic. But I think it is striking that, you know, Rachel Reeves, for example, you know, former Bank of England economist, now the shadow chancellor, goes to Washington and pointedly, I think, goes to Washington to make a speech in which she says globalisation as we know it is dead. Now that 
caveat is important precisely because of what you're saying. But I do think we are moving in a messy three steps forward, two steps back sort of way towards something which is trying to address, and this is back to insecurity, address the idea that globalization does have significant downsides. The project seems to be to try and rescue and hang on to the elements of it which are useful and aspirational and, you know, are very popular in, you know, places which have perhaps benefited from it more directly than we have, whilst also addressing in terms of migration, in terms of, you know, competition over, you know, labour costs and so on, some of the things which, you know, manifestly have caused serious ructions. I think, and on that, I think one of the, it does look like at the moment with uh, the China shock, uh, America versus China, these, you know, the 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 the, the free trade globalization of, of the last thirty years is is clearly over. And one of the questions then is, are we moving back? We're also in a world with plenty of um, autocracies, actors, um, certainly malign actors who have who are still having a pretty big impact on the world. One hundred and twelve armed conflicts going on around the world, and that's you know just uh, Gaza and Ukraine are just two of those. Mm-hmm. And in that world, it feels like one scenario, one consensus might be that we're actually going back to some period pre-World War One, where you've got these sort of, you know, it's not just two big blocks. It's actually uh, a sort of much more fragmented world. Um, the, the cheap stuff that we have grown addicted to in the West is no longer available. Things cost more. And there's more there's more tension between all these, a, a much wider range of states. It's almost a sort of Victorian sort of world. But without Britain as the, you know, the number one uh, country, potentially. Yes, and then having the currency which sews it all yeah. together. I mean, we know we're manifestly, as people often say about the China-America situation, yeah. we're manifestly not going to go back to that quite. I mean, no. you know, the internet yes. on its own means that that's And impossible. taking China out of the global economy is not it's simple. going to be, yes, complicated. Yeah. But, 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 you know, I'm no small example, but I'm researching a book about America at the moment. I frequently find myself coming up uh, when I'm uh, looking at uh, articles in Oklahoma and Texas against right. GDPR-based barriers where they don't want to risk them being open to some sort of you know legal suit in case right. what they're printing you know breaks our GDPR rules, and so I can't access those articles. So right. you know, there are just these little tiny yes. signs. But no, I mean I think you know um, as I say the 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 problem with globalization is there at the same time that it's offering people something. I mean I, you know I think one of the things that's striking in our politics is the way that and this is to come back to the nightmares and security stuff is that there are a whole bunch of different uh, issues which relate to this quite directly, you know, with, you know, risk to supply chains, with, as you say, a more hostile China, also a more hostile Russia, with what we've been going through on energy recently, plus, obviously, the environment, plus, you know, the need to level up areas of the country that have been struggling for a long time. And actually, those are all, feel like all like nightmare upon nightmare, but actually, they all slightly point in the same direction, which is to, you know, effectively an industrial strategy which revives those areas in a sort of, you know, green infrastructure way. As you said, how we pay for it, is the next question, but it at least feels like we've got a question to yes. try and answer. So that's a quite a neat segue into my next question, Phil, because um, as per the title of your book, could climate change be the next overarching motivating nightmare um, that helps us to forge a new consensus, not just in this country, but across the world? I mean, in the UK, we've seen some attempts by this government to push back on net zero and green policies, but they don't seem to be working. So what do you think about 
that. I think that's right. And I think one of the things that's really important to remember about consensus is it's not something that you get to decide in Whitehall or get to decide in any sort of you know center of power. You can develop it, you can articulate it, you can shape and guide it, but fundamentally you have to discover what is already there. And I think part of our messy process in British politics in the last decade and elsewhere too has been a process of working out that actually many, many people's priorities are shifted towards something more about, you know, I'd quite like a pay rise at some point in my life if you wouldn't mind. And I'd l- rather like my children to have a reasonable chance of being wealthier than me. And, you know, all those rather basic economic things that if you grew up in the 80s and 90s like I did, you took for granted. You know, so I think we are perhaps moving more in that kind of direction. My worry about it on climate change is that unfortunately, by the time there is a willingness to take action in the way that there was with the COVID pandemic, uh, we will have had to see mass flooding, fires, and just right. general mayhem before finally there will be an acceptance that we need to do something. And unfortunately, and this is the the, the problem, humanity is very good at dealing with immediate crises, well, like, like COVID-19. But slower moving ones, unfortunately, uh, we are much less good at dealing with. We're, you know, we're primed as people to be ready for a saber-toothed tiger to come into this room and we'll move skada. But when it's sort of 15 miles over there, we're just sort of, well, perhaps it won't come here anyway and something else will happen. So I fear that uh, climate change might be the thing that eventually there's some agreements. But by the time that happens, it will be too late, unfortunately. Although just to be slightly more optimistic yeah. than that, <laughs> I, do, I do think in terms of what you were saying about the the uh, rather thin success of the Conservatives' attempt post the Uxbridge by-election to try and turn you know the ULES uh, rules, which actually fundamentally are a public health All thing, those not an environment thing. cities where they're going to watch when you go to the shops, or or they're yeah. going to and the meat tax and the car compulsory car sharing. Well, exactly. It's sort of rather embarrassing to kind of have cabinet ministers indulging conspiracy theories or ministers, I should say. But no, I think the. I don't know. I, I just think that the the way that that uh, sort of slightly desperate desperate sort yes. of idea was seized on and met a sort of wall of public you know rejection and indifference is really quite striking. But but there is a lesson there, which is you know you can't just expect to land the costs of all this on the backs of people who are already feeling hard pressed, can't pay their bills, and all the rest of it. You've got to potentially be a little bit more radical to find ways to pay for it at the scale you're talking about, and that is going to require more fear <laughs> because yeah. you know you need to see changing that the every other single worse. boiler in britain and electrifying our transport network i mean the whole the yeah, whole scale yeah. of change that's needed yeah. is so enormous yeah. that it is has to be like a world war ii like uh situation but i just i shouldn't be pessimistic but looking at what we've seen so far as concern about the economy has risen concern about the cost of living crisis has risen around the world what we've seen globally is of course concern about climate change fall back now to where we were in 2013. Mm. So the world's getting hotter and the proportion of people who say we're heading for disaster if we don't do something mm. has actually declined because they're just now they're saying, well, I just need to pay my bills. So, mm. you know, so we'll see. Yeah. But that brings us to the thing you were saying before, which I think is a really useful distinction between fragmentation in Europe yeah. and polarization in America. Yes. Because, you know, if you're looking at it globally, I would imagine that if everybody in America decided that actually this was super urgent, we need to act on it, yeah. both in terms of the stats and in terms of the political possibilities, that would be quite a big shift. It so, would. so it will be interesting to see whether the polarisation process that's working yes. in the States now, which is going at a significantly faster pace yes. than some things, you know, it may just lead to disaster, but it may lead to disaster which is followed by a, a policy which is more open to what you're talking about. I think the only challenge with the United States is that when you look at scenarios for the future of the world, 
Uh, unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on your perspective, America sort of comes out best under virtually any scenario. So they can almost carry on doing what they like mm. within reason, both as a market, as a, as a, as a block, etc. Yeah. And they will suffer less in many ways because of the scale and a whole range yeah. of other reasons yeah. Yeah. than most of us in Europe or China. Yeah. And so again, I'm, you know, let's hope that well, America we'll will suddenly we'll wake up to, to climate change, but I'm, well, yeah. I'm skeptical. I mean, what I suppose one, this is an outside possibility, but you know, given how many relatively new Americans there are who do yeah. actually have quite close family links to yeah. East Asia and so on, it might be that there's more input right. coming that way, but yeah. I don't have any information yeah. on that. Well, um, the pandemic did crop up a moment ago in our conversation. I know it's probably two years or more now since we left the worst of it behind us, and actually large parts of the world and many of us in this room are determined to, to put it behind us as well. Um, but with the COVID inquiry going on in this country at the moment, um, it's probably a good moment to discuss this because I was struck, Phil, by the parallel. Some of the things that have been talked about with some things you write about in your book about Britain at the beginning of the Second World War again. So I know we're in Britain. I don't want to sound too obsessed with the Second World War, but it is kind of important. Um, and in those early days of the Second World War, during the Phony War in particular, and the fag end of the Chamberlain government, what we saw was a state that was ill-equipped to deal, not just you know, it lacked the will, it lacked the capabilities to actually manage and address the needs, um, the, the, the requirements of the crisis, the challenges of it. So do you think that we're at, we're heading to a place where there will be demands for a more activist state, both here and elsewhere as well. Do you think that's what we're going to be one of the outcomes of this, that people will be looking more to the state to help out? I mean, I think we've already been seeing that, but I think what happens, somewhat like what happened at the end of the 30s into 1940, is it meets resistances from people who actually don't need that much help from the state. I mean, I was very, very struck. I wrote an article sort of following on from the book for The New Statesman recently, and Peter Mandelson was talking in in terms about sort of rejecting the nightmare of austerity because we need to move to something more, you know, active in terms of the state and saying that the only people who'd ever sort of held on to that old nightmare were the people who didn't really need the help of the state in the first place. Now there, you know, in microcosm is a change in, you know, in in our politics. But no, I think, I think we're manifestly seeing moves in that direction. You know, the 2019 general election, that's clearly an element of that in this country. Country. You know, in America, actually, it's happened in a way that it was sort of slightly promised here and hasn't really been delivered. You know, COVID hasn't stopped it in the same way, partly because you had a change of government as COVID was coming to the worst of COVID was coming to an end. I mean, one of the things about COVID, which is, you know, many things different from the Second World War, but one thing about it is I think if you think back to March 2020, the degree to which people were talking about not only an activist state, but a protective state, something really quite transformative, you know, those kind of slightly kind of fevered dreams have receded. But if you look at the Second World War, there is a parallel, which is that in 1940, the kind of level of radicalism that people are expressing is way beyond where you get to in 1945. But to get to 1945 and the beginnings of the welfare state and so on, you have to kind of go too far first and then come back and reach a consensus. And I think, on, on, I mean, frankly, as our, as our survey shows, the, you know, our Global Trends survey shows, most people around the world are now concerned that their government will do too little to help them, so yeah, there is there is a very clear um, rising expectation of, of government action, and you can see it on on both the right and the left. Interestingly, but again, we're back to on in terms of the consensus. What there isn't consensus over is how that will be paid for. And another thing that that comes out of the report quite strongly, I thought, Ben, is the sense that individuals or certainly families are becoming a bit more insular. They're turning in on themselves a little bit more, and presumably that's going to make consensus actually harder to find. I'm not. I'm not. Sh I'm not completely sure about that. I think one of the things that you see in tough times economically is that people go out less. 
We saw it after 2008. They, um, they, they'll spend, you know, they'll spend less money and they'll, they'll do more home entertainment, home cooking, etc. And so you just get that plus the ability to create your own social media bubble, which is even stronger, and your own select media um, uh, is uh, things that weren't there uh, 15 or 20 years ago in quite the same way. But um, yeah, let's. I'm, uh, you know, I'm still, I'm still optimistic on people in general. Fortunately, <laughs> good. Well. Again, that's a great segue into my next question because one of the perceived threats to people is artificial intelligence. Uh, we're, we're talking again in the weeks is very topical while we're speaking at least because one of the leading developers of this technology seems to be going through a bit of a philosophical crisis about whether or not they're going to save humanity or destroy it. I'm not really sure what the details are of that. But um, 54% of us uh, around the world say that products and services using AI make us excited. Apparently, More than half people will agree to that statement. But more than a third of us are worried that it will take our jobs. So how do you think this one's going to play out? Ben? Well, the answer is we don't know, of course, and any predictions about technology like that are generally wrong. I think if a third of us lose our jobs, that prediction is almost certainly wrong because one 33% global unemployment is basically the end of the world. So um, that, that's almost certain not to happen. But in terms of its effects, in terms of um, increasing inequality, uh, you know, damage, you know, rising unemployment. We don't yet know. Generally, as we know, innovations, new technologies create new, whole new industries and new opportunities. The process of transition can be um, a little bit difficult. My re my relatives two hundred years ago were people who were marching over, um, you know, industrialization of agriculture, for example. Uh, and for the for several generations, I've got my family's letters going back to eighteen eighteen. I can see them complaining about the, the arrival of technology and threshing machines, etc. But um, overall, most of them are still alive. Uh, my family's still alive, and they've still got they have other jobs now. It's the process of transition, and I think that we, we link back to the expectations of the state. If AI does dramatically uh, re, re, you know, recast the economy or recast with automation um, the whole areas of industry and, and services, what you know, the state again is going to have to intervene. Everything points, I think, to a more activist state. It's just how and how and that how that activist state is going to work. I think that's right. And I think another thing that's very sort of telling about the whole open AI sort of debacle and other related tech company issues recently is, you know, it's particularly, I think, frankly, comic when, um, you know, the ideology that some of the people concerned believe in is this sort of long termism, which doesn't mean thinking 20 years ahead, it means thinking sort of 20,000 years ahead. And this sort of extraordinary extrapolations of possible consequences, you know, so I must make a huge amount of money, so I live longer. So you know, it's, it's and, it, and it just hits human limits. It's just straight up hubris. It's like, you know, Shelley's poem Ozymandias, it's you know, time and time again. And I, so I do think that sort of should serve as a hopefully cultural timely reminder in Silicon Valley, one might hope, this is perhaps too optimistic, to just bear in mind that, you know, you are working in a world of messy, complicated, crooked timber humans. You know, you're not introducing this into a blank lab, you know. And so hopefully, and actually that does chime with a lot of what's been happening in our politics anyway. I mean, think about the rise of populism. One of the ways to interpret it is people reasserting you know almost their own limits you know there are and not always in a positive way there are only certain number of people that i want to kind of you know get to know i don't want my cities to be completely you know global now whether or not we agree with that as a sort of premise it's there and i think you know it's so easy when you're writing about technology to think about it just as technology it's always in the world 
Yeah, and on returning to the optimism point, actually, we, we live in a world, not just a country, we live in a world of low growth now and inflation and cost of living crises. And most parts of the world have, have, have caught this disease, got this malady. Um, and so there's growing pessimism about our economic prospects. Ben referred to it earlier, you know, the loss of the future. Um, so, Phil, one of your central arguments is that consensus is formed and maintained when we share the same fears and anxieties. So do you think counterintuitively, actually, this it could be another cause for us to come together and actually find common solutions to this challenge? Yes, but it requires the people who are still holding on to the older dominant nightmares about how we must maintain you know, free markets at all costs. We must, you know, have you know significantly weaker trade unions than we had in the post-war period where people's pay was actually surprisingly slightly better. You know, there there is gonna have to be a switch. You can't have two nightmares that dom you know that, that are both rival and dominate and and so i think you know with labor party in, in the uk they have kind of uh, identified insecurity as the new nightmare what i don't think they've done is quite taken on the degree to which the older nightmares need to be just relaxed a little bit you know no one's saying we don't need to worry about inflation people didn't say that after 1945 it's just we need to worry about it a little less you know do we really have to have you know the bank of england's you know target as being two percent is that crucial to avoiding all calamity or actually are there now worse problems we need to tackle so it's just moving towards a situation where you know we actually follow through the logic of what you described that if that's really what people want there are other things that are going to have to shift so I suppose we live in an era of polycrisis, and as Ben again, Ben referred to earlier, we're finding that the these different challenges are vying for primacy in our in our minds. Um, war is on that list as well. Global conflicts. It's coming up the it's coming up the charts a little bit. I mean, a few years ago, maybe people weren't too worried about that. Now we're starting to see, for obvious reasons, that it's increasingly top of mind for people. Tensions seem to be probably higher than they have been at any point since the end of the Cold War. I would argue. Um, but war, of course, as your book shows, can be transformative. It can also entrench existing fault lines. So um, both of you, this one's for both of you. I don't know who wants to go first, but Ben should probably because he's not spoken for a while. Um, what's your feeling about where all this is taking us at the moment? Well, I mean, if I, if I could predict the future, I'd be a very, very happy man. But I think basically the 2020s look difficult. Two things we haven't, we've talked about climate change. The other thing we haven't talked about in most Western societies, or indeed globally, is also our aging populations, which means that the tax base to pay for. So you've got this double whammy of um, dealing with climate change requires massive infrastructure investment. That in itself is inflationary. Aging turns out to be tending to be, and the, and the age ratio changing turns out to be inflationary as well. So it's just really difficult. I think all of these structural factors uh, ultimately perhaps do point then to some, to some emergent consensus. The challenge is, I think, that we're still some time away from it. And that, that, uh, that, and it's that period of, uh, you know, the old order going, the new order arriving, and exactly how we're going to navigate this that um, is obviously fascinating to watch. But when you're living in it, uh, it um, doesn't feel so good. Well, if I might, I mean, you said you couldn't um, predict the future, but actually you did anticipate my next question very successfully, um, which is about demographics. And the world is gradually waking up to this I would say another creeping crisis of... Well, it's not necessarily because over, overall our control of our birth rate and how much of the world's resources we use up just because there are so many of us 
um, ultimately, to, I'm optimistic in the longer term. If, if, if humanity can get through this centrum, and I probably won't be around to see, almost certainly won't be around to see it, unfortunately, but we will, you know, we will, the population growth will slow and then go into reverse. That means that we, we might have a chance if we, if we get through decarbonization uh, of actually controlling climate change and ending up in a stable state where we're, we're not consuming far more of the world's resources uh, than are sustainable for the long term. But it's just getting there. We can see that, you know, so you can say that what is happening in Italy, in Japan, uh, what will happen in Europe and what will ultimately happen in Britain, where just we don't, you know, our, the population shrinks uh, is, um, you know, is terrible for the economy and economic growth. But actually, in the end, uh, it's probably what you need if you want to, unless we're going to go to another planet, which they all seem to be quite a long way away. Um, you, it probably has to happen. And actually, women, of course, are driving this because they're the people ultimately deciding not to have children for all sorts of reasons. Um, but uh, so there is there is some optimism in the long run. It's just getting there, I would say. Yeah, and actually to bring that horizon a bit closer to us, um, my question really was about um, that period where we have an older population uh, and we haven't reached this new equilibrium if it's out there. And actually, you know, we can already start to see how this is playing out, starting to play out politically. You know, authoritarian and nationalist regimes have one set of responses to this. China and Russia and Hungary and other places and liberal well, democracies. Well, they try and encourage people to have babies without very much success, quite frankly, because women, you know, just telling them they're going to get an extra 30 quid a week isn't worth it for the amount of uh, grief that they no. would have to go through. No, indeed. So, I mean, the, the, there's lots of... China's population continues to shrink. Indeed. And they're, so they're trying to roll back some of the progress that's been made on equalities, not just around gender, but around LGBT and, and other things. And also they have a different view on immigration as well. Um, whereas liberal democracies are taking one might say, a more enlightened approach to this. Um, but I'm biased, obviously, because I live here. But there are signs even in the West that actually there are challenges coming to that. So do, is this likely to be a new frontier in the culture wars, do either of you? I don't know. I think that, well, the idea of the uh, intergenerational war is something people have been talking about for a long time. Uh, decades, actually. But, but of course, what you're, you know, the, the older generation are your granny. It's your parents. It's not some other random people over there. And so we don't see that in the same way. I mean, I think young people are fed up with their lot. They're more pessimistic at the same age than than we were, than I was 30 or 40 years ago. Uh, you know, the chances of being able to afford a house for most people in, in many countries now, completely out of sight from a, a generation, our generation, it was the sort of thing you could buy in your 20s. The idea of the average, pers <laughs> the average person in their 20s buying a house would, is just would be madness to most people yeah. now. Yeah. But um, there, isn't, there isn't an intergenerational war I think and I think one thing if we change our ideas about aging uh, because age is the only ageism is the only prejudice against your future self all other prejudices are prejudices against some other randoms over there this is a prejudice against your future self I think there's a there is a real potential I mean and, and actually we should celebrate aging most of us now have the average modal age of death for women now is around 90 in this country uh, people are having much longer lives and actually overall still much better lives than previous generations if we can find ways and all of the technology at our disposal means that we should be able to find ways of making sure there's things for everybody to do and fulfill more fulfilling lives so humanity can get through this to be quite honest but if you don't but you have to change the way you frame that you're thinking about it just on what you were saying about I mean bring two things you were talking about together yeah. how a how do we pay for it and b yeah. you know are we going to sort of worry about the environment early enough yes uh, and also 
also then the generation point. I mean, I was talking to a, a policy analyst, an analyst recently who was suggesting, and this may be pie in the sky, but I thought it was a rather interesting thought, that if you want to make the case mm -hmm. for borrowing mm -hmm. on the basis that, you know, if we spend the money now, it will be cheaper than if we spend it in the future when we might have more money for, you know, green infrastructure and net zero and so on, that actually if you sell that to the younger generation on the basis that we're going to borrow the money now so you don't burn yes. in 30, 40, 50 years' time and you can have confidence that you can look forward to a planet that is inhabitable, that's actually quite a persuasive argument, at least for that generation. But they yes, but the, the difficulty is older people have slightly shorter time horizons. But as you say, mm. ageism yeah. is prejudice against your future yes. self. That will be a prejudice against your children, grandchildren, yeah. which is. I the think first the, of your I mean future. we're back to the sort of trying to look at the Burkean idea of society. You know, this 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 link between the, our ancestors, the people who have gone before, the yes. people who are here now, and the generations yet to be born. Right. And maybe that's maybe there's some hope in that. I think there might. Be. So, final question, you might be relieved to know, and I'm going to give this one to, to Phil because um, he's our guest, so I think he deserves to have the final word. Absolutely. Um, I mean, it's interesting you mentioned your daughters and, mm. and um, you know, the, your closeness to them. I mean, my daughter's four, uh, 13, sorry, I shouldn't, I need to edit that much out. She's 13, and she's actually a very big fan. I had nothing to do with this whatsoever. She's a very big fan of the Beatles and the Smiths, right. um, which is, uh, I, I've come to, I'm quite pleased but also perplexed by um and i again referring back to your book the late 1960s was a time of tumult in this country and this issue of demographics that there was actually a, a this is when the baby booms were starting to come of age now i wonder if you think those two things are connected in some way that actually a large cohort of younger people coming into the workforce coming of age can be quite disruptive yeah, and it's also the first time in the 20th century when, you know, you can get to sort of 23 and avoid a war, you know, by 1968. And, and they got the pill. And they all got married really early. Yes. Dominic Sambro, historian, pointed out to me that yeah. 1968 is the year in the 20th century when the average age of marriage in Britain is lowest, you know, counter to the idea that everybody was in Chelsea, you know, being yeah. a hippie and so on. So there's a whole bunch of different factors come together. I mean, if you look at the way that the trade unions change, you know, there's a much more aspirational sort of shop steward driven sense of, you know, I'm just going to kind of try and get as much money as I can, bluntly, not the sort of I will do what Ernie Bevin tells me to do version of trade unionism from 20 years before. That's one reason why there are more strikes and trade unionism starts to become seen as more of a political issue alongside what's happening in the economy. But no, I think I think having a huge young population does all sorts of things to the system that we're still working out now. I mean, I remember talking to people about the history of the development of the post-war universities and they were saying that, you know, they invented a subject like sociology, they would sort of have nobody who could teach it. So you'd have undergraduates who were going straight into jobs and then 40 years later, they're still there, having never done a PhD. It has all sorts of strange little ripples. My dad, he got a job at uh, life tenure in a university at 22 right. and kept it for his entire um, life. But I think the one thing I would say about demography, if there is a large chunk of people, one of the things you could argue about pop music in Britain and, and popular culture is when you've got a vast number of people, and I'm, I'm, I'm at the tail end of the baby boomers because I was born in 1965, but there were just so many more of us in the early 1980s. So you can say the 80s music, the Smiths, you mentioned there was just there were just more of us around i think the other thing the other phenomenon in this which we haven't is is yet again technology and i think 
Whereas for me to find out about popular culture involved going around news agents, trying to find a physical paper copy of a magazine called The Face, because that's told me what was hip and happening in London. Now, because of the internet, the, the past has never gone away. You can, and it's one reason perhaps why youth trends aren't quite as exciting, because it's just now, again, fragmented. The, the old music's always there. You can rediscover the entire back catalogue of all music uh, for the last 100 years. You can discover all of sort of youth trends, you, any youth trend you like, you can find. It's all there online before for me I don't and probably for you I was I was I was really into being cool and running my nightclub but it meant it did seem to involve a lot of time trying to find physical paper magazine to find out what was hip but then my 17 year old daughter complains that she looks back on the world of actual subcultures right you know, uh, from the late yes. 70s the early 80s yeah. you know with a sense of sort of you know loss because right. she'd actually quite like to play they get destroyed on they just, get destroyed on Instagram as soon as yeah. they're created they're yeah. popularized and gone. My, yeah. my son's in fashion and he says the same thing so maybe the secret ones are ones that don't appear Appear online yeah. anyway, so we just don't even know about them, and that yes. that that's that would be a really yeah. cool the thing. Cult of people who are not on Instagram. Yeah, yeah. I know. I, I so I did tell it because that was going to be my last question, but that's at such an interesting point. I just want to explore it for just for a moment because this seems to me to speak to the pace of change. I mean, there's a lot of hyperbole around. I'm sure there always has been, but it feels like there's a lot around at the moment that we are going through a time of unprecedented change. Well, we always say change. that. I mean, people felt that about when publishing started or when the steam engine arrived or, you know, but I think it's fair to say that in terms of information, we probably are at a point where there is more information of different sorts and, and, and content in its very broadest sense, very easily available. That's why well, that is one change at very low cost. Uh, and, and it's another explosion, and it's similar to the invention of printing in the 1450s, which, of course, you know, we take we take some time to get used to, and that millions die in Europe in religious wars mm. by making the Bible available finally in the vernacular, mm. and different than then suddenly discovering that the people who've been telling you about this thing about it, and this is why the, things are like they are, it suddenly fragments. So there, and there maybe is something in that. Yeah, and there's something about the way that bad actors are quicker off the mark than good actors. Yes. Um, both in politics, in terms of criminality and scams and so on, and also just in terms of the sort of awful stuff that was happening to teenagers released into the wilds of Facebook about 10 years ago. Whereas, you know, my, my kids have been, you know, schooled very sort of rigorously by school and by, you know, about what you do and don't, you know, reveal about yourself. And there's much more of a culture has developed around it, but that takes time. And that applies across, you know, as I say, I can't. Yeah, I, mean, I hadn't intended to go all the way back to the early modern era, but um, on a subject of change, I mean, it's difficult to measure how fast change is actually in popular culture terms, but there is an argument to think which is plausible that popular culture actually is now developing at a relatively glacial speed. And if we accept that, I wonder how much that is to do with the demographic points that we were just talking about, that actually that cohort of baby boomers who moved up through the 60s, came of age, 60s through to the 80s, because we were on average quite a young around the West generally, and actually in large parts of the world, we were quite a young population, that that was what fueled a lot of this. And actually now we're moving into a slightly decrepit, might be a bit strong, but you know, the innovation and, and developments and creativity is maybe on the wane somewhat. I just think it's a the, the un, unexpected 
agglomeration effect of the internet. So the internet was meant to be a place where millions of artists could suddenly thrive and they'd find an audience or that lots of retailers, mom and pop shops could suddenly sell to the world. And instead, what do we have? Spotify, Apple Music, you know, Beyonce, listen, and those uh, Amazon dominating everything. Late 19th century trust, basically. Yes. And so what, in, what has instead happened is that rather than being democratizing and everything else, it's actually been, a, there's been an effect of homogeneity um, and agglomeration because of the distribution effects of the internet and how they actually work in practice. But in terms of what we're saying about AI and so on and the sort yeah. of revival of the human, I mean, if you look at what's happened with the, you know, the writers and actors strikes in Hollywood, which are precisely, you know, people who cannot earn a living because all of the money is being sucked up with sort of five CEOs at the top yeah. of these huge streaming services, but they have done rather well through their strikes. And one of the reasons I think that's happened is because I think there's consumer support because they can see the logic, not just that they can use the internet to push the message, but they can see the logic which says, actually, you know, do we want to live in a world where more Morgan Freeman's face is being made artificially younger because we haven't brought enough actors up because every film that we have to make has got to make money so fast that we can't take any risks and we can't let, you know, indie production develop as it should and so on. And so that we're seeing, you know, a bit of a turn on that, just as actually, you know, to come back to the 70s, you know, punk only happens because it's a rebellion against a a version of that in, you know, props. that's true. (laughs) Well, I don't know if the situation that you both just described really speaks to polarization or consensus or fragmentation, probably all of the above, I think. We're still searching for consensus. We are, and I think we probably always will be, but thank you both. I'd just like to thank you both for taking the time to to do this today, and I hope you've enjoyed it. I hope uh, our listeners and viewers have enjoyed it. For those of you who haven't already, I would urge you to, first of all, buy and read Phil's book, The Death of the Consensus, um, but also the Ipsos Global Trends Survey, Polarization, Pessimism and Positivity, which is if you want a snapshot of where the world is today at the end of 2023, you could do a lot worse than that. Um, we'll be back in 2024. I hope that's a year that surpasses all of your expectations and whatever they are. And we'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.